Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual doubleheader today. First and seconds, we'll hear from Margaret Corvid on the descent of British politics into chaos as the Brexit deadline approaches. And at the bottom of the hour, the historian John Clegg will set us straight on the legacy of slavery. First, Britain. In June 2016, British voters, by a 52-48 margin, voted to leave the European Union, an act known as Brexit. There's a left version of it called Lexit. Some who voted to leave were just giving the political establishment the finger, some were motivated by xenophobia, and some no doubt thought that leaving the EU would improve their lives. At the time, few people had a clear idea of how messy the process would turn out to be, and the British government is now in turmoil over how to work things out in detail. Failed Prime Minister Theresa May resigned in June and turned things over to Boris Johnson. Johnson used to be famous for playing an upper-class twit, an act that some thought was a cover for a sharp political mind. In the 50 days he's been in office, he's revealed that this was no act. He really is a bumbling fool. What's going on? Here's Margaret Corvid, a Labour Party activist who's a member of the City Council in Plymouth, England, to explain. I should say she's speaking entirely in a personal capacity. Margaret Corvid. Your country sure makes for uh, interesting politics. Um, what's the latest? If you're not up with the latest hour's news, you're, you're, you're behind. Uh, well, the latest hour's news is that the Scottish Court of Sessions um, has been considering uh, the case uh, about the prorogation of Parliament and whether or not that is uh, legitimate action by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And the court has ruled that the advice that Boris Johnson gave to the Queen about the prorogation of Parliament was unlawful. Um, so the prorogation, which is a term for the suspension of parliament, is unlawful. Now, the government is appealing that to the Supreme Court, which will be hearing it in London on Tuesday. So we'll wait and see what happens there. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, what sway does the Scottish court have? Well, it's a court of sessions. So it's a normal appeals process. It would be like the Ninth Circuit Court making an appeal, and then it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's that kind of jurisprudential weight, but it applies to the whole UK. Now, Boris himself is just one disaster after another, right? He's lost every parliamentary vote. Was this a surprise? I mean, did you expect more out of him than this? A lot of people expected more out of him because, you know, he's known as kind of a witty person, uh, somebody, you know, he was on the comedy news show, How Have I Got News For You, where he was actually really funny. So people thought that he was really smart and that he would do a good job. But that's actually turned out not to be the case. He's been an absolute disaster. <laughs> there was a, a line that uh, his bumbling fool routine was just an act, and he was actually quite clever under that guise. And you know, there's a certain tradition of an upper-class twit that uh, he was playing with, but uh, he really is an upper-class twit. He is. He's a guy who has a whole big sense of entitlement. Um, he thinks that he's smarter than he is, and he thinks that he would have been able to secure a Brexit deal or no deal, which many people think he wants, just through bluster. But Parliament has stood up to him, and you know he's lost six out of six votes, and it's just not going very well for him. And what's happening within the Conservative Party? Are they in rebellion against him? Uh, what's happening with the Conservative Party is, like, for the last couple of years, there's been a rift in the party uh, between hard Brexiters who really want no deal uh, focused around bodies like the European Research Group headed by MP Jacob Rees-Mogg, and then uh, more moderate conservatives who are pro-European Union. Basically, he was trying to get a bill through 
to uh, make the Brexit deal happen. And a lot of uh, conservatives, like 29 conservatives, were stymieing him. And they just got summarily booted out of the conservative party. The whip was withdrawn from them. So it's carnage on the ground. That uh, photo of Rees Mogg napping on the the parliament bench uh, was certainly striking. How do you read that? What was he saying? He was basically saying that uh, the bill that was going forward by rebellious MPs to force Boris to have a deal, to not be allowed to do no deal, uh, he thought the whole discussion of that was stupid and he was showing his disrespect for that debate. So he wants a no deal. Oh, yeah. Jacob Rees-Mogg wants a no deal and all of his supporters want a no deal. They're basically trying to turn the UK into a rich person's playground stroke tax haven. And they think uh, Brexit is the way to do that. I think a lot of Americans might find some of this language strange. So perhaps you can translate for us. What would a no deal Brexit involve? What would it mean? A no-deal Brexit basically means that on October 31st, which is actually the date that uh, the EU granted as an extension, this was all supposed to go down in April, that after that date, we leave the European Union and we don't have any trade agreements with them. So any kind of trade that we would undertake as a country would be under World Trade Organization rules. And, uh, you know, we just wouldn't be part of the EU. We wouldn't be giving money to the EU. We wouldn't have votes in the European Parliament. The EU wouldn't be giving us money. And a whole lot of ways that the UK is knitted within the EU would stop. Freedom of movement from within the European Union countries would stop as well. And what about uh, EU citizens who are in Britain now? There have been arrangements made uh, in the past year or two for present EU citizens to be able to get leave to remain in the UK. Um, But there's still a lot up in the air with that. There are a lot of misunderstandings with that. There's been letters sent out by a uh, primary school to parents saying that if your kids don't have settled status, you're going to have to take them out of school. No, that letter was false. That was based on bad information, but it's just an illustration of the kind of uncertainty and lack of understanding about uh, EU residents' uh, status in the UK. Britain trades very heavily with continental Europe, so what would happen to the, that, that kind of trading um, in the event of a no-deal Brexit? Well, there's going to be a lot of problems with that trading. If you're looking at a no-deal Brexit and the first two to six months, there could be severe disruption uh, in terms of shipping, in terms of the exchange of goods. Uh, for instance, here in Plymouth, this is a port city. And, you know, right now you don't need to have certain checks when you're uh, exchanging goods back and forth. You would need to have those checks, including veterinary checks for animals, health checks for food and stuff like that. And there's really not a lot of preparation for that. We don't have scores of customs inspectors and health check personnel here in Plymouth or in any other port city. Um, And so you could have lorries stacking up on on the motorways. Medicines, a lot of people are concerned about shortages of medicines that would happen. And and trade is already starting to be disrupted. Uh, If you go to the chemist to get your prescription filled, sometimes they will only be able to give you part of your prescription or you won't have your prescription at all because uncertainty is leading to this this trade disruption in the markets. And what's the alternative to a no deal? What kind of deal could a government negotiate? 
you have uh, the withdrawal agreement bill, uh, Theresa May's deal that was put forward with the EU that would make temporary arrangements happen um, so trade wouldn't be disrupted. And then over the next decade, we'd need to negotiate under that agreement a new trading relationship with Europe. Uh, but the big problem in there that's being debated in the entire country and that the Tory party is really torn up about is this question of the backstop. Uh, do you want me to explain that a bit? Um, yes, that's one of those words that pops up that needs a translation. So basically, if you look at a map of the UK, uh, most of us are on this island, um, but there's a bit of the UK, Northern Ireland, that is on the island what it shares with the Republic of Ireland. So Ireland is in the EU, and if we leave the EU, uh, we are not including Northern Ireland. But part of the Good Friday Agreement was the free exchange of goods, sort of a no-border, a frictionless situation between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And if you're talking about a global market, that's not going to work smoothly if we just leave the EU. So there has to be a backstop. There has to be, um, if there's going to be no border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, some sort of agreement in place. And if we're not able to get a deal, we would have this thing called the backstop, where under its sort of guidelines, we would still be in the EU market temporarily constrained by and protected by the rights of uh, EU trade and consumer laws. Um, but the hard Brexiters are super not into that. They think that's sort of like a sneaky way to kind of keep us in the EU, to keep us in the market. So one of the things people have proposed is that there's a backstop that only involves Northern Ireland. Uh, one thing that has come, in, come up with by Boris and the Tories today is like trying to build a bridge between Scotland and Northern Ireland or something like that in order to keep the trade going. But all the ideas they have are really far-fetched. And, you know, there's been an uptick in violence in Northern Ireland. And a lot of the things that people are forgetting to think about is that this whole Brexit process could undo the peace process in Northern Ireland. What would the Northern Irish think uh, should some kind of hard uh, border emerge between the North and, and the Republic? Is there any sentiment for joining the Republic? Well, there's always sentiment for joining the Republic. It's split along the old lines that it always is. Theresa May's government had a confidence and supply agreement with the DUP, which is a kind of a right-wing unionist party in uh, Northern Ireland. They They wanted to have a negotiated deal with a backstop or something that would protect the, the frictionless border situation. Left-wing parties, parties like Sinn Féin or whatever, would, of course, want to unite Northern Ireland with the Republic of Ireland. But a lot of the views of Northern Irish people and politicians are really being seen as an afterthought in this process, which actually kind of sucks. What do the Brexiteers, the hard Brexiteers, want? What is their fantasy of what things would look like if that, uh, that split happens? The hard Brexiteers basically want to have a Atlanticist kind of agreement uh, between the UK and uh, countries like uh, the United States. They think that if we have a hard Brexit, we can do all this cool stuff. We can be supersized in our trading. We can be liberated from the EU rules and become a very positive energetic economy, but they're really not basing that on any kind of real science or economics at all. If we leave the EU, 
it's not likely that we're going to be able to get favorable trade agreements with a bunch of other countries. So they're kind of full of full of crap, really. Um, And then if you talk about a lot of ordinary Brexit voters, they've been kind of psychologically manipulated. A lot of them have been imbibing fake information, thinking that, you know, if we leave the EU, we won't have all these immigrants and our public services will recover because they won't be overburdened by immigrants. Uh, But that is actually not why our public services are overburdened. They're overburdened because of Tory cuts. So it's a whole lot of confusion and misunderstanding, really. I'm speaking with Margaret Corvid, a Labour Party activist and member of the Plymouth, England City Council. There are a lot of people on the left who support Brexit uh, because of the, the heavy hand of Europe uh, uh, is austere. They see somehow that Britain has been suffering like Greece did from the EU. But all of Britain's austerity is homegrown, right? There's nothing coming out of Brussels or Frankfurt. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I've always been really opposed to the court of left Brexit, Lexit kind of analysis. People are thinking on this left analysis of Brexit that, oh, my goodness, if we leave the EU, we'll be able to do things like nationalize our railways again and create this socialist paradise. Uh, but they're really, really got the wrong end of the stick because the whole Brexit movement and its whole main thrust is coming from the hard right, disaster capitalists allied with blood and soil authoritarians and fascists, really. So I I think Lexit is a dead position and a really dangerous one. But does it still survive? Are people still looking forward to this day? In terms of left-wing Brexit, it's kind of gone pretty much radio silent. I see a very few people still advocating this position, but the majority of the left has moved, along with the Labour Party, towards at least a rejection of a no-deal Brexit, if not an outright remain position. That anticipates my next question. Where is the Labour Party in all this? The Labour Party is super divided. Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, has called for a second referendum, uh, a final say, a public vote, uh, before we have a general election. Um, But Jeremy Corbyn, and the, the leader of the Labour Party, and the large majority of the Labour Party want to have a general election, but they don't want to have it on Boris Johnson's timetable. Why not? I mean, he, I saw Johnson was mocking Labour the other day because, you know, he's saying that the, the Labour right is afraid that Corbyn would win, uh, but the rest of the Labour Party is afraid they would lose. Uh, is there any truth to that? Boris Johnson basically wanted to set an election for the 15th of October, which would be two days before the great big EU summit that would hypothetically work out agreement uh, before the 31st of October. And if we had said yes to that general election, we would have totally shot ourselves in the foot because that election would be fought on Brexit. And there would be a whole lot of people who would just be like, leave means leave, Brexit means Brexit, Boris is going to give us Brexit, and Jeremy Corbyn is trying to stop it. And, you know, we would get our tushes kicked. We want to have a general election, but we want to have it on our timetable. And we're basically putting country before a party. And instead of having a general election now, we want to make sure that we get a Brexit deal or maybe no Brexit at all, depending on who you talk to, before we talk about a general election. So 
Boris is calling us chickens. He's calling us chlorinated chickens, which is really funny. But we are basically saying you are a bad puppy who's done a poo in the corner and we're not going to take your general election. We're going to leave you in the stink of your own mess and you have to get us out of it. And if it all goes completely belly up, it's your fault and not ours. So, no, we're not going to jump into that trap. But uh, it does seem that Corbyn has been a little evasive on where he stands on Brexit. People think he's secretly wanted it, uh, but he's not public about it. So what is his feeling? I don't know. He says he voted Remain. Uh, Corbyn has been in a really tough position because, well, if you look at certain geographic areas of the United Kingdom where there's a whole lot of Remain, there's also a lot of historically labor seats that overwhelmingly voted leave. So if he wants to deliver a labor government, and the only way to do that is to get labor parliamentarians into place, he has to make sure that our position doesn't cut off one group of people over the others. So he's basically been focusing on, we don't want a no-deal Brexit. Even if you voted to leave in 2016, the whole campaign was like, we're going to get a deal. We're not going to leave with no deal. We're going to get a great deal with the EU. So nobody voted for the hard no-deal Brexit that pretty much all conventional wisdom says Boris is going for. A lot of people who voted for Brexit probably did so just as uh, flipping the bird to the the, uh, establishment. But now that the process is turning from a fantasy into a reality, in a very unpleasant-looking reality in some ways, has public opinion changed? Uh, Yeah. If you look at some of the polls, public opinion has shifted. There was a really great uh, poll analysis, I think it was by uh, Curtis uh, from Strathclyde uh, University, that if you talk to people who voted leave, most of them don't want a no-deal Brexit, and they're not going to be satisfied with that. Uh, And if you talk about Remain uh, voters from 2016, their viewpoint has remained consolidated, um, and they definitely don't want a no-deal Brexit, and they definitely want to have a chance to have a confirmatory referendum, a public vote. So Boris is playing a really hard game. If he wants to get his no-deal Brexit, it's going to be a real gamble for him. And the question is, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party have tried to create a rebel alliance, as they've been calling it, in Parliament of parliamentarians who want to oppose a no-deal Brexit. And if we can keep that rebel alliance unified you know, hopefully we're going to be able to stop it. You would think that Labour would be doing really, really well in the polls, given what a disaster the Tories have been. And May, a preposterous uh, character who left in disgrace, and now Boris Johnson, different kind of preposterous uh, character who's made a disgrace of himself. So you would think that Labour could benefit from this disarray among the Tories, but it, it doesn't seem quite that way. What's up? Uh, that is a question of messaging. Basically, there's been a whole bunch of stories about Jeremy Corbyn in the press for the last uh, four years almost, saying that he's a terrorist sympathizer and so on. He met with the IRA. He's a friend of terrorists, a friend of the IRA, a friend of Hezbollah and everything like that, when all he's been doing... And an anti-Semite, too. And an anti-Semite, yeah. All he's been doing is having negotiations in the 80s and 90s with these groups as any leader or parliamentarian might do. And uh, the question of whether he's an anti-Semite, I must say that there's been some very big difficulties uh, in the media about that, because two things are true here. There is a serious and sustained problem with anti-Semitism among many supporters 
of the Labour Party, but also supporters of many other parties. But the notion that Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic, I think, is extremely unlikely, extremely disingenuous. Um, And the party has been working very hard to root out anti-Semitism. There was an investigation a couple years ago and a report by uh, Shami Chakrabarty, and uh, people have been educated in the party about how to spot anti-Semitism, like Rothschild memes being forwarded on the internet, and why it's wrong and how to oppose it. But I think that the problem is being characterized in the press in a way that is disproportionate, because members of other parties and other political parties, organizations also have problems with anti-Semitism. It is a huge, awful, growing problem. And it's not just in the Labour Party. You've been living in Britain for a while, but uh, you grew up in the United States. Uh, How does anti-Semitism compare in the two societies? Well, I've been in the UK since 2005. So uh, my comparative uh, approach with the US would be a little bit out of date. But I think that anti-Semitism is actually growing everywhere. Um, you know, you've got swastikas being painted on synagogues. You've got physical hate crimes. Um, and you've got slurs, all kinds of stuff on the Internet. And, and that's going on across the world. Um, and it's also going on here. And this is, of course, the, the old disgraceful journalistic habit of ending an interview with uh, the crystal ball section. But uh, what, what are we looking forward to in the coming weeks uh, with Parliament in suspension and uh, a deadline uh, on Brexit looming? What's going to happen? Well, I mean, we need to see with regards to the prorogation of Parliament what happens with the London uh, court hearing on Tuesday. Um, if uh, the prorogation is deemed unlawful, then hopefully Parliament will come back and be able to scrutinize any efforts that Boris Johnson is making. On Monday, his attempt to get a general election was rejected again. Um, So if there's going to be a general election, it's probably not going to be happening in October or November. Hopefully, we're able to move through to get at least some sort of a decent deal. I find that incredibly unlikely because Boris Johnson, it's been reported that there's really almost no efforts to get a deal, that no matter what he says, it's pretty much no deal that he's going for and no deal that he wants. I'm I'm very nervous personally about no deal. But what I hope happens is that we can delay Brexit. We can ask for a delay from the European Union. Uh, We can delay the implementation of leaving and that we're able to have A general election, but also uh, even before that, I would like to have a confirmatory ballot because I think that if we have a second vote, which is something that's very normal in lots of countries, um, you have an advisory referendum, then you have a confirmatory ballot after the deal is worked out. I think we would have a chance to reject that and uh, to stay in the EU, which while it has many, many, many problems, I don't think leaving is the answer. But there's really no prognostication that can be accurate at this time, because we are in a period of unprecedented constitutional upheaval, political upheaval, and polls or no polls, nobody knows what's going to happen next. And what has all this turmoil done to the feelings of daily life? Because I, I know Trump as president has been immensely disturbing to people on a very emotional and personal level. I mean, interviews with bartenders and psychoanalysts will confirm this. Uh, what's <laughs> all this confusion? I mean, the, the threat of Brexit and then the political confusion of the last uh, several months. What's this done to the, the, the feel of daily life in Britain? 
daily life has gotten harder in a lot of ways. People are generally more stressed and more fearful, more fearful, even people who aren't necessarily engaged with politics. Um, we knock on doors year round in the Labour Party. And so, you know, I was knocking on doors last week and you got a lot of people who are bewildered, who are angry, who are detached from politics because they're throwing their hands up. Uh, whether they're leave or remain supporters, people have lost faith significantly in the political system. No, it's, it's grim. Everything is falling to Yeah. We just got to hold the line. I want to trust Jeremy Corbyn at the moment because he's been playing the long game. And if he is able to hold this rebel line together, we're able to challenge uh, Brexit and maybe get an extension and actually get this sorted out. Um, but we really, really, really do need to keep our eyes on the ball and realize that we can't let the psychology of this detach us from our engagement in politics. That was Margaret Corbett, a Labour Party activist who's a member of the City Council in Plymouth, England. She was speaking entirely in a personal capacity. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Dismal man in dreary sea towns buzz around like flies. Someone said, we know what you're thinking, try this on for size. Deep and still, blood on the pavement, sticks and stones, hold them in your hands, a pint of fear and home by tea time, for we are afraid. Come with us, oh Now some of Fear and Beer, a song for Brexit by the Mekons. Next, slavery and its legacy. There's a school of thought which got heavy exposure in a recent essay in the New York Times magazine by Matthew Desmond that holds that slavery was foundational to American economic prosperity. That view is quite controversial among historians, especially economic historians. Here's a critic, John Clegg, to explore the problems with the argument. Needless to say, this isn't an argument that slavery wasn't a horrific crime that made a small class of people very rich. It's also not to say that slavery didn't have a profound influence on U.S. society to this day, as Clegg will point out. You can find an article of his on the topic on the Jacobin Magazine website. Clegg is the Harper Schmidt Fellow and Assistant Professor of Social Sciences at the University of Chicago. John Clegg. There's a story that slavery was the cornerstone of American economic uh, prosperity and growth in the 19th century. How true is that story? I think it all depends on what you mean by cornerstone. It's certainly the case that um, the Southern economy was a large share of the overall American economy in the 19th century. I think it's also the case that the division between North and South, uh, between southern, southern states where slavery was legal and the Northern states where it wasn't, is in some ways the decisive key to American political history in the 19th century. Certainly it's the main cause of the Civil War, which is the most important single event 
in American history after the, the Constitution and the Revolution. But if you mean by cornerstone, uh, something that Matt Desmond uh, means in his New York Times article that came out in August, which is that was the decisive factor in allowing American growth, economic growth and development to take off in the 19th century. I think the evidence for that is, is not particularly compelling. It's a story that you hear a lot in, among some recent historians of capitalism who try to make that case in, ver in various ways, but they've been also heavily criticized by both historians of slavery and economic historians who've pointed to some of the weaknesses in, that, in the empirical arguments they make. What are some of those weaknesses? So I would begin by to mention uh, one of the historians who makes this claim, uh, Edward Baptist, in his book, The Heart Has Never Been Told. He argues that um, slave-produced cotton was the um, driver of American growth for several reasons, but he tries to measure it. And basically what he does is he says that the cotton from the South, the raw cotton produced by slaves, entered into northern industries, uh, particularly the, the textile industries, but also it helped develop the banking industry and the, and the merchant industry in New York. And he acknowledges that the actual percentage of the American economy represented by that cotton was, was quite small. It was about 5% or less. But then he kind of adds onto that contribution, the contribution of all of these industries that supply the, the slave plantations with goods, and then all these other industries, which he claims were not, even, not necessarily using the cotton, but were, were profiting off it. He, he does a, what economic historians would call a form of double counting. Uh, so the price of the cotton is 5% is of... GDP, but that includes the price of all the inputs to the cotton. And he essentially adds all of those together and he sort of adds it up to 50%. He, ma he makes this claim that 50% um, of the American economy in the 19th century can be attributed to slave produced cotton. But everybody who's looked at those figures, he calls them a back of the envelope calculations, with any scrutiny has, has recognized that they're nonsense, that, that cotton was an important industry. It was certainly a very important export industry. It was sometimes up to half of, of U.S. exports consisted of the value of cotton. But exports were a very small share of the U.S. economy, less than 10%. And the kinds of linkages to other sectors of the U.S. economy were much less than, than I think Baptist and some of the other historians who work on this have led us to believe. Now, this is a little bit off the track, but uh, what about the importance of the cotton imports from the U.S. Uh, to British industrialization? Was that something more significant? Maybe it'd be good to step back a bit and to, to say that the, this debate that we're having that Matthew Desmond is, is summarizing in his New York Times article actually comes from a, a longer debate that, that didn't concern cotton at all, but concerned sugar. So Eric Williams, writing in the 1930s in his classic book, Capitalism and Slavery, made what I consider to be a quite convincing argument about the contribution of, of Caribbean trade to English 18th century economic growth. So British merchants relied on Caribbean markets as a captive market, uh, but also obviously were importing large amounts primarily of sugar from the Caribbean, which was an important commodity in Britain. The cheapness of sugar mattered for the, cheap, the, the, the wages of British workers, it, and the, the captive markets of the Caribbean mattered a lot to nascent British industry. So I think Eric Williams' claim about the, the, the essential nature of the, the Caribbean to British 18th century development, that's been extensively debated. And that thesis, what we call the Williams thesis, has actually kind of stood the test of time quite well. There's quite a lot of evidence that via direct trade, via financial mechanisms, via recycling the profits into industry, there are many channels which, in which you can plausibly say the Caribbean was an essential driver of 18th century British growth. 
what these new historians like uh, Edward Baptist and, and Sven Beckett and, and Seth Rockman are doing is they're essentially extending the Williams thesis to 19th century America. The irony of that, of course, is that Williams himself would have rejected that because Williams saw uh, 19th century capitalism as, to, to a large extent, independent of slavery. And, and in fact, he argues that it's the, the fact that British capitalism becomes economically independent, delinked from slavery in the 19th century, that explains the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. But anyway, these historians are, are trying to extend the, the Williams thesis to 19th century American industrialization. So essentially, they're saying that the industries in America are, are dependent on slave produced cotton for their capacity to take off. But there's a similar claim being made in, by Sven Beckett, again, quite in contradiction to, to Williams, but that the British uh, textile industry in the 19th century is also heavily uh, driven by slave produced cotton. Now, there's no doubt that the cotton textile industry was a very important sector of, the, of British manufacturing in the 19th century. But Williams's claim is not so much about the, the importance of a particular sector, it's about the linkages that that sector has to the rest of the economy and that the essential nature of slavery in driving what for Williams is like the cheap commodity. And the question of whether American slavery was a kind of necessary component to that is a complex one. And you could say that certainly you could make a plausible argument, and, and Beckett does, that the cotton industry of Liverpool and Manchester was dependent some, to some degree on slave-produced cotton in the, in, the, in the Americas. Of course, that didn't mean that the abolition of slavery undermined those. In fact, Beckett shows that the abolition of slavery in 1860 had very little effect on, on the strength and power of the British cotton textile industry. Cotton production actually increased after the abolition of slavery in the Americas as well as in other parts of the world. But nonetheless, I think you know, Beckett makes a point about the importance of cotton in the 19th century as one sector Right, not not the overall growth, but as one sector that's a central uh, driving sector, perhaps in British industry at the time. But again, it's quite a different claim than the kind of claim that Williams is making about the takeoff of, of, of British capitalism in the 18th century. I'm really focused on in my article on the the, the other claim being made about American industrialization, and there I think the problem is not just that people like Baptist get the numbers wrong; they neglect the way in which American slavery was in some sense a limit to American growth and American economic development in the 19th century. American economic growth really took off after the Civil War, right? Yeah. So if, if, if this thesis is right, if we, if we believe the story that Beckett and Baptist and Rockman are, are saying about the essential nature of slavery to American growth, then you'd expect the abolition of slavery in 1860, 1865, during the Civil War, to be a, a huge problem for the American economy, because if, if it was the driver, then um, you would expect that the machine is now broken. The, the original source of American wealth has been taken away. Uh, you'd expect the American economy to tank. In fact, the opposite uh, is what you see. The 19th, late 19th century growth is as rapid, if not more, more rapid than early 19th century growth. There's, there's moments of crisis, as there always is in capitalism, uh, but the, the, the continuous takeoff after the Civil War is remarkable, and it's remarkable that um, it doesn't follow the narrative that these historians are telling uh, that we, we would expect if these historians were right. Um, the other thing that I want to say about the limits to growth that slavery produced, which I think is largely neglected in this story, is two, well, twofold, really. First is, is the, the, the nature of the slave South. So if we recognize that cotton was only 5% of the US economy, you can say, as Baptist does, well, maybe it kind of 
fed into other industries in other ways. So even if it was a small share of the economy, other industries benefited from, from having uh, access to this um, enslaved population in the South, just as Williams had said the same about the Caribbean as an important market for British goods. But of course, the problem is that the South isn't a particularly important market for Northern industry, in part because it's so self-sufficient. The South produces its own food, and the quality of life, of course, of the enslaved population is very low. Uh, so their demand for northern goods, for northern tools, for northern clothing, for northern machines are all very minimal. Uh, so it's really the, the, the West and the expansion West that's, that's much, a much more important uh, market for northern industry, industry than the South. So that's the first point, that it's, it's much less important as a market than these historians would, would um, suggest. But the second point is that the southern states have a significant influence over the American government, of the federal government. And on every economic issue, they opt for policies which are counter to growth, right? So they're opposed to infrastructure development. They're opposed, systematically opposed to spending on public goods, on railroads, on, on roads, on ports, on all the things that a fledgling economy would need to grow. Uh, the South is an obstacle. Not only that, they're an obstacle to spending money on education, uh, even on, on agricultural research. The kind of things that would actually improve the productivity of the South are being obstructed uh, by slave owners for very specific reasons. They're afraid of um, enslaved populations learning, becoming educated and, and freeing themselves. And so they're systematically opposed to the construction of schools and universities in the South. And they see the northern hotbed of education, research, technological innovation as threatening their institution, their peculiar institution in the South. So the claim that, that the South is kind of a key stimulus, provides a key stimulus to American growth, I think just flies in the face of both the economic and the political history. There were a lot of very wealthy planters. Slavery made a lot of people quite rich, um, but that was not the kind of wealth that one associates with normal capitalist dynamism, was it? It's kind of a stagnant wealth. Yeah, it's important here to, again, again, sort of maybe step back and, and contextualize this debate a little bit, because there's often two debates that get confused when we talk about slavery and capitalism. The one that I'm talking about here is the Williams debate, so that the contribution of enslaved people and enslaved plantations to economic development happening elsewhere, whether it be in Britain, industrialization in Britain, or in this case, the United States in the Northeast in their industrialization. But there's another debate that's quite separate, quite independent to that, which is about whether these plantations were themselves capitalist. So this debate, this, this historical debate, is more or less resolved. I think there's now a consensus that whatever your definition of capitalism is, you can find evidence of it in the South. Slave owners are interested in making money. That's their primary interest. There used to be this claim among historians that Eugene Genovese was this old historian of slavery in the 1960s who would argue that that this is a pre-capitalist, pre-bourgeois culture. I think no one really supports that claim anymore. It's, all the evidence shows that, 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 that the South, like the North, is governed by a capitalist logic of accumulation. So that's, I think, we can agree on, and I do agree with the contemporary historians who are arguing that. I think that we've long known that um, about the South. But what they, again, mistake is that they mistake the, the fact of wealth accumulation among slave owners and the desire for wealth accumulation among slave owners with broader logics of economic development um, that are necessary for economic growth. Uh, so one of them being uh, investment, an investment in uh, productivity enhancing skills, technologies, anything that will um, essentially lift aggregate 
GDP. You see some evidence of that in the South. You see some evidence of innovation, certain kinds of um, research being done on the cotton plantation. Some of the evidence is there in, in actually, actually in Matthew Desmond's article of that innovation. But at the same time, what you don't see is um, diversification of the economy at all. Uh, the southern economy becomes locked into cotton and sugar, and it's true that wealth is accumulated. So you have more millionaires in the in the in the Mississippi Valley than anywhere else in the country, but all that wealth is locked in land and slaves. And so you see very little urban development, very little industrial development, very little investment in anything but raw staple production. There's no question that, that has an important uh, cost. For the South as a region that we still see today, it's still the poorest region in the United States, and the lack of, of historically the lack of investment, the lack of diversification is the best explanation I think for that. And slavery has a key role to play in that explanation. I'm speaking with the historian John Clegg. Okay, now let's turn to an area where slavery has had a profound legacy: the structure of our government and our society. How did slavery leave its mark there? Now let's get to where slavery really matters, the political heritage that is uh, bestowed upon the U.S., uh, our, the structure of our government. How did slavery uh, leave its mark there? I want to make it clear that, that in, in contesting this narrative that slavery was the key to American growth, I'm not saying slavery didn't matter for the form that American capitalism took. It did a lot. I think American capitalism is what, specifically what, what uh, Mac De Matthew Desmond calls the low road of American capitalism, so the, the kind of deregulated low levels of social protection, basically the absence of social democracy in the United States, that has a lot to do with the legacy of slavery. And yet it's not a question, as Desmond suggests, of money from, from, that's produced on plantations flowing into northern industry. It's not a question of the kind of innovation of technologies in the South. It's really a question of two things, I think. Firstly, um, racism. Racism as, as a direct product of, a, of, a, of the slave system, the, the attempt by slave owners to justify their domination over enslaved people. That has an unmistakable legacy for, throughout the United States, not just in the South. It's key to explaining the weakness of American labor historically, its inability to successfully demand and achieve social protections, regulations, all the things that you would see in a typical European late 19th century, early 20th century uh, development are missing in the US case. And I think that has a lot to do with the legacy of racism. And I think we can all see that. It's, it's sort of obvious and it's bizarre to me that sort of Desmond doesn't see that, that that's, that's the key to understanding low road capitalism is the racist legacy of slavery rather than the money and, and, and wealth that it produced. But the other um, key thing to see, I think that people recognize less often is how slavery influenced the American state. So the federal government is obviously a, the product of a constitution that delineated powers between, actually between cities, states, and the federal government. And those powers are divided up fiscally and in terms of how representation works at each level. What Desmond and, and other historians fail to see is that many of the aspects of American federal government that were really impediments to the kind of European-style social protections were written into the Constitution. And they were written into the Constitution either by slave owners or by the compromise that was made with slave owners in the founding. Such as what? I would give a number of examples here. The key thing to understand about the American state is that it's fiscally divided. Uh, it's divided in terms of which elements of the state can collect taxes, and then also which elements of the state can spend those taxes. One of the key compromises that was made in the initial constitutional convention was with the South, with representatives of slave-owning Southern states, 
who are very concerned about the power of the federal government to potentially do two things, either abolish slavery, and secondly, the power of the federal government to tax their slaves or to tax the commodities that their slaves produced or the importation of slaves from Africa. And so the constitution contains as a result of this concern by the slave owners, a number of limits on federal power. The federal, federal government is very clearly kept out of almost all kinds of law enforcement, right? The federal government is only allowed to enforce laws across with commerce, across state lines and with international trade. Everything else is left to the states. And there's a very hard distinction there between uh, state power to enforce law and federal power to enforce law. That keeps the, that's the, keeps the federal government out of the states and out of intervention into slavery itself. Secondly, the federal government's capacity to tax is highly restricted in the constitution. Uh, so essentially the, the constitution explicitly bans a number of taxes, including uh, the ta taxes on exports. Of course, America's primary export there at that point was slave produced commodities, specifically cotton, but also tobacco at the time of the constitution. Um, so the federal government is, it's illegal for the federal government to tax exports. The constitution is set up in a way that makes it virtually impossible for the federal government to tax wealth and even income. So the only way that we have an income tax now is that, that we had a constitutional amendment in, I think, 1909 uh, that allowed, that broke with this tradition of banning uh, the federal government from taxing. And second, and thirdly, the, the federal government is, it was restricted from taxing the importation of slaves for 20 years. So there are not, all of the, the, the restrictions on government are focused on ways that the federal government might potentially interfere with slavery um, and that essentially protects the wealth of slave owners from, from that interference. Now, my understanding of this or my interpretation of this comes a lot from uh, a, a fantastic historian, Robin Einhorn, who has a, a book, American Slavery, American Taxation, which I really recommend people, people read. And in that book, Einhorn shows that the concern of the slave owners at this point in founding the, in the American state, even though it created a, what, what could be seen as a kind of paradise for capitalists, right? It created a world in which, in which only interstate commerce was regulated. So property was protected literally when it moved across the state lines in the case of fugitive slaves, or when large merchants were doing trade across state lines. So those merchants, their property rights were protected, including the rights of slave owners, but any other interference in the property rights of, of, of wealthy people, including uh, the capacity of the state to regulate and tax their wealth, was explicitly forbidden in the Constitution. And Einhorn shows that, that isn't, even though that produced a kind of capitalist paradise, that wasn't their intention. Their intention wasn't simply to generate this kind of libertarian, what some libertarians call uh, competitive federalism, right? Their intention was to protect themselves from their own slaves. So. The, the fear that the federal government will interfere with slavery has a lot to do with their fear of slave insurrections. Slave owners uh, were, were highly insecure property owners because their property could rebel against them and did rebel against them and had just recently rebelled against them during the Revolutionary Wars when large numbers of slaves joined the British um, in, in a number of slave insurrections. So the, the insecure uh, property owners who, who wrote the constitution built a constitution that would protect property rights in very clear and, and, and lasting ways, because their particular form of property was something that they were afraid of. I think this is a very compelling argument for understanding the, the low road of American capitalism in the long run, how the government ends up becoming a, a, a force for 
protecting property owners, but also is disallowed from interfering in their property or interfering with, with taxation. A couple of the things that you mentioned earlier as the uh, preferences of Southern slave owners, uh, their um, hostility to spending on education on, or on infrastructure, things that would normally be seen as promoting capitalist development, um, these persist as very pervasive themes in American politics today. Absolutely. And you, and you, and you often see that these, these, this persistence also takes the form of state versus federal uh, tension, right? So, you know, when uh, the federal government introduces Medicare programs, expansion programs, they often face the problem that the the federal government isn't supposed to do any of this work unless it's collaborating with the states. But then the states, because they exist in a context in which the federal government is rigorously enforcing the mobility of capital, but is is not um, regulating taxation or or, or not directly regulating capital themselves, there's a kind of race to the bottom among states. Uh, where they're essentially begging corporations, like you see this with Amazon recently and Boeing, and you know states are begging corporations to come to them in, in return for deregulation, low low rates of taxation, and the result is that 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 the the very part of the American government that could potentially provide social protections, could provide the kinds of investment that would lead to a kind of higher wage economy, are prevented from doing so by the structure of the federal state system. So uh, there's just no doubt that slavery has had, had a very profound impact in the structure of the American political economy, even all these centuries later, but uh, we just need to be straight on precisely what that was. Exactly. I think that you see a lot of conservatives who responded to Desmond's piece and to other pieces in the New York Times by getting up in arms that capitalism itself was being maligned. No, I mean, slavery was a form of capitalism. There's no question about it. And there's no question that it had a key role to play in American capitalism and particularly in American politics and, and American culture. But the, the arguments that are being provided here, the, the economic arguments that are being provided here are just, they're not, yeah, they're not right. And so I think getting the story right matters, not just because we, we should care about history, but also because we should understand how American capitalism works today. That was the historian John Clegg, Harper Schmidt Fellow and Assistant Professor of Social Sciences Division at the University of Chicago. Clegg mentioned the work of historian Robert Einhorn. I've got her lined up for an interview in the next couple of weeks. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the liberation from prison scene from Beethoven's Fidelia, performed by the Chicago Symphony under Georg Scholte. It's a marvelous musical instance of an Enlightenment celebration of freedom, but the actual Enlightenment itself, of which the U.S. Constitution was a part, made some major exceptions in whom that freedom was for. Clearly, the only way that bourgeois society could live up to its constantly broken promises will be to transcend bourgeois society. Till next week, bye.